Oh, uh, we have bees now. You have bees? Yeah, yeah, we what? got bees. Tell me more. <laughs> I want to know about uh, bees. Okay, uh, well... Did, did we lose you? Um, hmm. <laughs> okay, I hello? heard the... Hello, hello. I couldn't find Discord, but now I do. Oh. <laughs> I need to hear about the bees. Yeah. yeah I missed uh, we, this. What about the bees? Uh, we got bees. Uh, like, so, you got bees, yeah, like like hives? Yeah, yeah, like oh. hives. Uh, we've got oh. two hives right now. Nice. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we just got them this week, so, you know, we're still waiting for them to, you know, set themselves up and everything, but, yeah. David and Andrew saw, or David, Andrew, you're Andrew. Dave, I, I mixed you up with my cat, sorry. <laughs> David. Wait, what? David now we know Carmen. where I stand. Well, you know, I, I love my cats a lot. Oh, I bet that's not playing, is it? I'm hearing it. Oh, you are? It's funny. Okay. It's, it's glitchy. It's stuttering. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah same stuttering. here. I'm hearing it, but it's, yes. Yeah, oh, you know, you know what it's doing? It's doing wrong things. Just a second. Uh, <laughs> wrong oh, things. Oh, no. I need to turn off automatically determine sensitivity, and I need to turn my sensitivity way up, and that should help. Okay, here we go. Welcome to good-looking people in small, clever rooms that utilize every centimeter of available space with mind-boggling efficiency. It's week six, and we're up to page 151. I'm Andrew, and I'm here with Brianna. Hello. And we're joined by my mom, Norma. Hi, everyone. And by our friend, Vinny. Hi! There was a lot going on in this chunk. Um, yeah. so some of it was fun, some of it was really deeply unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> well, first we need to talk about Lyle. I love him. <laughs> I love him because he oh, is the kind of guru who wears <laughs> spandex and lives off others' perspiration. Yes. And he kind of strikes me as... He feels like a ghost or like mm. a manifestation of superstition. Yeah. There's uh, a thing in mm, here... Yeah. Where they say he's uh, uh, sitting yogic about a meter off the rubberized floor of the weight room. And I had to go back and reread it because I thought they meant he was levitating. I know. I thought the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> he's <laughs> on top of, uh, of the towel dispenser. Right. Yeah. He, he sounds very unsettling to me. Um, yes. I think it's the fact that he lives off of perspiration. Yeah. Licking, yeah, licking people with his like kitty-like tongue was a yeah. little upsetting yeah, to his hear. Kitten-like tongue, kitten-like yeah. tongue, yeah. <laughs> and yet I love him. He is yeah. like a beloved nut. He is okay. an yeah. ETA institution. Yes, this is true. I'm just saying that everyone should respect him because he's beautiful. <laughs> also, he's just so weird. I mean, he, he comes out of nowhere kind of like the um, wheelchair assassins. 
And the wheelchair mm. assassins are so uncanny. So yeah. why can't there be someone who lives off of perspiration? Yeah. He sleeps in the weight room? Is that true? Does he ever leave the weight room? <laughs> yes. No, not, I don't believe not he that ever we know leaves. of. It also yeah. said somewhere that he goes way back with James O. Mm. With, with mm-hmm. Or there are rumors that he there does. There are rumors that he does. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever that is a reference to. So he's timeless. He's like the Gandalf of Infinite <laughs> Jest. <laughs> yeah. It also is kind of like you would kind of know if you were a real true resident of this school once you stop thinking that it's weird that he's there. Yeah. Like the new students are creeped out by him, but apparently, you know, eventually, eventually it's like, oh, well, yeah, the guru. <laughs> he's a Lyle is here. He's here. Yeah. And um, he wears a tank top that has something written on it in Latin. Uh, yes, Deus providebit, which is God provides, God will provide, or something yes. like that, right? Yeah. On the right. front, it says transcend. On oh, the back, right. it says Deus providebit. I also had questions about who the narrator is in this oh, section. I asked that too. Yeah, because it's very clearly it, in first person. Yeah, right. I love that the ending of that section is "I want to be like that." able to just sail quiet and pull life toward me one forehead at a time. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I suspect that it's Hal. That's my suspicion as well, but I figured I'd pose the question yeah. rather than say, yeah. Yeah. well, Hal says, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. Who the yeah, hell am is, I? The whole who's talking question is confusing because, I mean, I keep thinking of Hal as the main character, but I realize that that's only because he was the first one. I think. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was the yeah. first main character. Well, <laughs> yeah, he was the, he first, was the first one. We've also spent the most time with Hal, I think. Yeah, I guess. Like, we've jumped around a lot. Yeah. And, you know, we've had plenty of chapters of people, but I'd say Hal and Marat, at this point, we've spent the most time with, and Hal we've definitely spent the most time with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He also, in many ways, feels like the most relatable character that we right. know. Right. There's another really lovely kind of poetic moment in here towards the end. He says, everyone should get at least one good look at the eyes of a man who finds himself rising toward what he wants to pull down to himself. Mm, right. Yeah. <gasps> and this all comes back. This, this advice about the, the kids doing chin-ups, doing pull-ups. Yes. Mm-hmm. His cautionary words about that. I, I just realized on. that just now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Holy buckets. Wait, what are his? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm skimming. He's, what he, when he, he said his advice is basically don't try and lift something that's heavier than you. <laughs> yeah. mm, and the yeah. Lord said, let not the weight thou wouldst pull to thyself exceed thine own weight. <laughs> oh, okay. Some good solid advice. Rarely in the Bible do you get such practical advice. Specific. Actionable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's yes. the part that comes back later in yeah. in further, you know, in the insurance along. adjustment. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. 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 It also says his name is supposedly Lyle. Right. <laughs> Nobody seems to know for sure. I moved yeah. to refer to him as supposedly Lyle. Supposedly Lyle. Yes, I like that. I like yeah, that. Yeah, that sounds good. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it does bother me a lot 
that they describe his tongue as little and rough, but feels good like a kitty's. <laughs> I don't know. The term <laughs> kitty, like yeah. a kitty's tongue, it seems odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the, in the rest of the considering the the writing style, it does seem out of place, but <laughs> definitely jives with the first person. If it yeah. were in third yeah, person and it used the word that's kitty, true. I would feel weird. Yeah, he's a mystery, and I love him. Well, there's no time like the present. Should we move on to this section about poor Tony? And friends. Yeah. and friends and yours Poor truly yours truly yeah. who is never directly named i don't think we know the name of this speaker do we i don't, we don't. think so no in all yeah, the um, in all the weirdness of how this is written i did like the one one word that is used several times which <laughs> that the conversation conversation, conversation. Mm-hmm. i feel good. like i feel like our uh Infinite Just podcasts are sort of a conversation. I like that, yeah. Hmm. You know? It's yeah. a conversation that starts and ends at sort of sort of predictable times. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and you keep conversing to fill that session. It's a conversation. Mm-hmm. So there's, mm-hmm. plenty of, there's plenty of other things to object to in this, but the conversation term I liked. Yep. Yep. But boy, was it hard to read. Yeah, it was, hard to it read. was pretty um, ugly. <laughs> honestly, I'm not exactly sure what happened in this section. Yeah, we're back in the world of addiction, though. You know, right. there's that rising yeah, up again. Sure. We're back in the world of addiction, and they're talking about trying to get what they're trying to get in shape for Christmas, right? Is that what they were talking about, or did I totally? Yeah, well, and, but but they don't. They can't really. I mean, yeah. they. They're slaves to their addiction, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. And um, and incredibly violent at that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So like yeah. A, a violent street gangy sort. of... I mean, of... it almost it almost reminds me of a Clockwork Orange or something. Mm-hmm. The, I could see the, that. A lot of the violence that they contemplate seems to be sort of aimless, and it do- right. doesn't get them anything. It's just an idea that they have that they talk about. Right. Or they, you know, they want to rob somebody. They want to they want to rob them. But then they end up doing horrible, horribly violent things to them that they wouldn't have needed to do. But they do it because one or another of them really likes likes that, Mm -hmm. likes to be violent. And it also seems like they've completely lost touch with reality. I could see that. They're also all really pathetic characters. I mean, they're homeless, basically. Yes. They live on this. I think the, we can assume. Their spot yeah. is the sewer grate behind some store. They've had to form these alliances with other people like themselves who they kind of hang together and stick up for each other. But they're really quick to to throw the other one under the bus if if mm-hmm. if it helps their situation. Just trying to stay alive and keep their drug habits going. I also had a narrative wrinkle that I wanted to ask about. I was unclear about who in this group is cross-dressing and who's a prostitute and who's both. Because we know poor Tony is cross-dressing, i.e. the feather boa. But I wasn't confident that I tracked whether everybody cross-dresses. 
That was the impression that I got. It is very vague. It's just kind of how I was was playing the movie in my head. I pictured just him. Yeah, I kind of pictured just poor Tony as well. all of them probably prostituting. Yeah, for me, I only saw poor Tony as cross-dressing. And I'm not sure if yours truly does, even if C is as well. Mm. Mostly because Mm. it seems like yours truly finds it particularly reprehensible. Right, because they talk about going places with poor Tony and somebody, as it yours truly says, that he can pretty much tolerate when alone but together can't stand them like get a bunch Mm. of them together and then it's like too much for us and we have to go off and while poor tony is hanging with his other cross-dressing friends why we have to go off somewhere else because it's like too much for us Mm -hmm. i would like to take yours truly aside and let them know that cross-dressing does not necessarily mean that you are homosexual Right. And Although being in, homosexual in, does not necessarily mean that you enjoy cross-dressing. Right. right. In this case, though, it seems that maybe they, they are also gay or they're willing to sleep with men for money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these guys, these guys come across as they're scary. You wouldn't want to run into them on the subway. You wouldn't want to run into them walking down the street. They're trouble. Right. They're dangerous. Yeah. And yet I did feel a lot of kind of sorrow for them. That yeah. their lives are just a wreck. This isn't a life that they chose for themselves. No, they're Some like they're like systems prisoners or, in this yeah. horrible right systems and choices and addictions grabbing them, and they didn't start out this way, but now here they are, and they've got there's like no hope. There's nobody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't have anybody that's even trying to pull them out of this bleak existence it's just it is what it is yeah Mm -hmm. there's also so i was thinking that there's no crossover with other characters that we know in this section i had a question about that oh go ahead on a first read i was like yeah definitely no connection to anything else i have questions about is c clinette from the Wardine and Roy Tony section earlier in the book? Well, so I just stumbled across as I was looking through this again. There is a mention of Roy Tony in this section. Yeah, yeah. yeah on page 129, there's a couple of uh, mentions of Roy Tony and yeah. maybe later on as well. Yeah, who is perhaps some other crew that they have some... They're cautious around him, and they want to avoid him and his crew. Which makes sense, Mm. considering what we know about Roy Tony and how he uh, treats his girlfriend and his girlfriend's daughter. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I fully intended to find information and scholarship discussing cross-dressing throughout Infinite Jest. Just because this is it keeps the, coming up. Yeah, this is the third <laughs> mention of it, at least. Uh-huh. Um, unfortunately, I didn't find anything specifically related to cross-dressing, but I did find a couple of things related to gender. The other things that I found were about like the overlaps of race and 
language mm. and gender. Mm-hmm. So uh-huh. thank you to Matthew Alexander for his paper, David Foster Wallace and the Repressive Taboos, Clinette Henderson, Yours Truly, and the Identity Politics of Representation. Mm. Um, mm. He said that silence, critical and otherwise, to remain around such issues as the treatment of language and dialect in Infinite Jest suggests that society is complicit in the maintenance of a status quo and that such complicity is far from democratic as it demonstrates a tendency of hiding behind an ideology of tolerance. So a couple of episodes ago, we talked about Wardine and Roy Tony and the use of African-American vernacular English in that section Mm -hmm. and i'm Uh seeing a lot of that coming up here as well Mm -hmm. yes um yeah and i wanted to make sure that we did touch on it because i strongly feel that not talking about it is reinforcing the taboo Mm. Uh Mm -hmm. i still think that it's possible that it's problematic that a white man is writing in this voice but I have, I don't know, I'm questioning, is that okay? Am I okay with it? Or am I just going, I'm probably just going to sit in this discomfort and question whether I'm okay with it. <laughs> right, yeah. mm. right. It's true. Like, so this, yours truly can't spell. His education was incomplete somehow. And when you read the whole thing, clearly it's supposed to be really uncomfortable for us to read this. Mm-hmm. The storyline is incredibly uncomfortable, even if you just, if you use language that he uses other places in his book, instead of falling into their way of talking and using the the different spellings and all of that, that, that the storyline itself is upsetting enough and mm-hmm. disturbing yeah. enough. But when you mm-hmm. add in the disturbing choice of how to write about it, it makes it even more disturbing to read. It feels like it's a much more upsetting experience to read it than if it were just going along like the part about the, if he had written it the way he'd written the part about supposedly Lyle, you know, and you're just going along and talking about these guys with their drug habits and their, uh, it would be an unfortunate part of the story, but reading when it's written like this, it's like, it is uncomfortable. Like, is it really okay for him to write in this way? Right. But it adds to the big uncomfortableness of the, yeah. the whole situation. And I somehow. wonder if it's an empathy thing, too. Like, mm-hmm. if we put the reader directly on the shoulder of this person who's going through something so horrific, watching their friend die in a really graphic way yes then maybe we can find some way to be compassionate to this person that we don't even know their name it seems very intentional that we're being presented with this vignette in first person and if he were to present this in a more sparkling grammatically corrected speech uh, that felt like it had been sanitized or made grammatically acceptable for us, is that also problematic? Yeah, mm. right. Um, and, and I wonder to what degree the visceral experiences of reading this are uncomfortable to us because we're white Midwesterners who aren't familiar with this dialect. Right. 
I think that my feelings about this now are a little more complicated than than when we first encountered the section with Wardeen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. And I do still have problems with a, a white writer writing these characters in this way, but it also seems like it is out of a gesture towards empathy and understand like respect and understanding mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. knowing also that david foster wallace was a very much like ideologically a grammatical descriptivist uh rather than a prescriptivist he believed in uh language that like the purpose of a dictionary for instance is to catalog the way that people speak the language rather than giving them rules for how to speak correctly um right, right. Hmm. And when I when I read these sections in the book, I also have to keep you know I have a lot of wonderings about Hal's family, and so mm-hmm. I I always I always think about his mother and yeah. her 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 linguistic her what is she, how is she described the she's like the, the she's a militant linguist yeah yeah she's we, get language, a, we get an end she's note language about that. police she's language yeah. police she's like the French. Academy. The, the Academy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the same thing. And so then I think coming across these sections in the book makes me more aware of that constant struggle, that struggle between yeah. the dictionary as authority versus the dictionary as description. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I just want to jump ahead momentarily because it supports what you're saying here. There's that end note that mentions that she formed the militant grammarians of Massachusetts. Yes. yes. Um, it, like that to me feels much more of a scornful parody uh, than anything that's happening with the language in this section. Yeah. And mm. to support what you're saying, Andrew, I stumbled on another, um, in my extracurricular reading, I stumbled <laughs> on a quote from the Consider the Lobster essay on what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and DFW talks about how he takes some of his students of color aside and like levels with them and is like, you need to be able to learn how to at least fake this standard white English to succeed in the academy. Um, and he writes, I should note here that a couple of the students I've said this to were offended one lodged an official complaint and that I have had more than one colleague profess to find my spiel racially insensitive. This reviewer's own humble opinion is that some of the cultural and political realities of American life are themselves racially insensitive and elitist and offensive and unfair. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I do think that it's something that he's thinking about and my friend Matthew Alexander also said that he thinks that this attempt at dialect is an indicator of the merits of stepping outside of one's own artificially constructed yet rarely acknowledged as such boundaries of identity. I mean, yeah. race is a social construction. So as we're grappling with this, is he doing something worthwhile by acknowledging his race and saying it aside for a moment. It does make more sense when you, know. with mm-hmm. what you shared about his, him, you know, talking to his students uh, 
about needing to be at least be able to write in the standard format, not that that's better or that it should be the bulk of what they do in their writing, but that they have to be able to do it if it's needed sometimes for them to Within this oppressive within, structure. Right, within the oppressive yeah. structure. It makes sense then that if he's asking those black students to be able to put themselves aside and write in more standard white middle class English, then it makes more sense too to think that he would say, okay, if I'm asking them to do that, and it's obviously something that is really hard and uncomfortable Mm-hmm. for some of them, then I have mm-hmm. to be able to go the other direction. And I have to be able to write using non-standard format, yeah. even though that's outside of who I am and outside of my comfort zone. And I won't be able to ever do it as authentically as someone who actually lives in that culture and in that language right. kind of pattern. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it reminds me, mom, it reminds me of language and dialect are different things. But I was just thinking about how uh, when you were teaching, um, you know, you'd, you'd often have kids who were English language learners and their primary language was Spanish. And that's like, you know, little kids are good at learning new languages, but it's it's still a difficult thing to adjust to in a classroom. And right. I always really appreciated the that you uh, did so much bilingual education of English-speaking students, that you would use Spanish in the classroom and, right. and you would kind of encourage them to to think in another language also. My Spanish is not that great. My, I can mm-hmm. talk, but it's, I'm, it's bad. <laughs> my Spanish is bad, but I can go on and on in my bad Spanish. And, <laughs> and I always felt like even if other English-speaking kids could never understand any of it, just the fact that they're around it and hearing it and you just acknowledge it that some people speak a different way than you do that it changes it changes their idea about people who are different than them and so maybe it's true that you know he wants to expose us to this because it's good for us to understand that the whole world doesn't express themselves the way we white middle class privileged people do and mm-hmm. Yeah, I and think, there's still a story to be told, even if it's told in a way that we're uncomfortable with. <laughs> like it's right. not all about us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so far, my <laughs> biggest concern with this um, and with the writing style and everything is that so far, both of the chapters that we got in this style have been mm-hmm. about violent characters. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And have, yeah. And have Ugly been kind stuff. of. Yeah. Uh, right. Why doesn't he use this language to go and talk about taking the dog out to play <laughs> in the park? Right. Or, you know, you know why, yeah. <laughs> you know, if it's about kind of um, stepping outside of your own experience and everything, we don't really get any anything else except for these chapters, which are enforcing negative stereotypes. Right. Yeah. So they're, he's um, using yeah. this, this language style only to tell these horrific stories. Right. It's further racializing that violence. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like connecting the violence and the horrifying circumstances. It's connecting them to that style of language and expression. It's like tying them together. Yeah. Right. And it's not saying that one, you know, 
that they have to go hand in hand, but it's kind of implying Boy, that that's sort of the yeah, way it, it is. Could be implying you know? that. It could mm-hmm. be implying that. And I mean, maybe, and what would, what would Hal's mother say? <laughs> would Hal's mother say that the deterioration of language brings about the deterioration of civilized society? I mean, I that's know. the, like, that's, that's fascism, right? Which I, I think is, is sort of m- maybe dancing around the edges of any discussion of prescriptivist grammar, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. that like, if you use it incorrectly, particularly if poor people or people from other unacceptable races use language incorrectly, then it causes the social decline of your once pure nation. Right. Oh, gross. And not only for right. not yeah. only for Very the pure gross. the pure part, but those those who would wish to join the middle class and the that right. that that they're bringing about their own downfall because they're not using language correctly. They're not learning how to conform <laughs> and pretend to be white. Right. right. Not, yeah. Unacceptable. Yeah. Do we have more to talk about here? I mean, it's describing a truly awful incident that I don't want to, I don't think we need to get into really visceral detail about. It's just very bad. Yeah, Yeah. it's very bad. And it's also drugs. And it's also, it's the icky part about these individuals who, when you first start reading this section, it sounds like, well, their lives are hell, but at least they, you know, they have some friends sort of, and they, you know, they kind of look out for each other. And then you get to the end of this section and it's like, no, no, they let this guy use the tainted drugs and, you know, used him for the canary in the coal mine. You know, they mm-hmm. they let him, and he was supposed, this person was supposed to be their friend. Yeah. And yet they just, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think and, that that, like, thematically is one of the things we're seeing here that we're also seeing in other sections is that their addiction is stripping their humanity and compassion away from them. Right. Um, yeah. And they're sort of right. just doing whatever is necessary to feed that addiction. I also just had a larger big picture question of what is this section even doing here in terms of advancing any plot? I mean, or is it really well, it just does. there to paint a greater, deeper picture of addiction? In which case, why this? Why this vignette? Well, it refers back to this, though, later, right? Mm -hmm. We get a reference back to this, or an implied reference back to this Yes, that that we think is like either these same characters or or people in very similar circumstances. Yeah. Right. But... I kind of I, think it's I kind of think it's what you said about the bleakness of addiction. We've seen addiction in a lot of different formats. You've got the guy who holds a job and he just calls in sick for a week now and then and <laughs> stays locks himself in his apartment and smokes weed. Uh, mm-hmm. and then you have the addict who is landed in the psych unit who is addicted perhaps for different reasons. And then you have Hal who you know, pretty much goes along, and yet he counts on his little time down in the tunnels <laughs> to smoke. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. you got mm-hmm. you've got these guys who are totally, totally unable to function, really, in a in a nonviolent kind of way. Mm-hmm. And you've got uh, what's his name, the burglar, Gately. Oh yeah, Gately. Gately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All these all these stories of addiction at different like different degrees. It's definitely 
building up to, I mean, we've seen all of these different vignettes of addiction and everything. And I feel like we're building up and, you know, in the next chapter, um, I mean, I'm wondering if we'll be returning to the Ennett House drug and alcohol recovery house mm, um, at right, some point. Because I definitely, to. from reading the back of the book, I know that there's going to be this ongoing story of addiction and recovery and things like that. And so I feel like right now, you know, in this still pretty early section of the book, it's all about giving us these glimpses into it, giving us these character studies of addiction. And I feel like that's kind of the point of this. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and seeing this extreme, the extreme scenario when you've lost so much of what it means to be a human living in community with other humans, that it's kind of a, a cautionary tale and a question mark. Like what makes these guys fall so low and others be able to continue their addictive behavior and still be somewhat functional. It is interesting, Mm. like what happens that sends them so deep into the pit of violence and disconnection. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a different drug, right? We've up until now been talking more about marijuana. Right. Mm. I don't know. Are we creating a hierarchy (laughs) of addiction? Like, there's no Maybe. going back from Drano laced heroin, but right. marijuana, right. maybe. So we've got this uh, phone call between Oren and yeah, Hal. Yeah, and we get kind of, again, this sort of lack of communication between Oren and Hal. Yeah. That yeah. They're <laughs> talking around each other, but nobody really seems to be able to hear what the other is saying. Uh, Mm -hmm. until the very end there. I looked back to see when the other phone call happened, where he called and said that he had, what did he say? I want to tell you. I want to tell you my head is filled with things to say. Mm -hmm. When Oren called, that was in May. And this takes place in November. Mm. Okay. And I think it mentions that there have been these weird phone calls, sort of. Yeah, it says something about how Oren has, has started calling. There's so much in this part that we read that I think plays really well in this time of pandemic when we're doing all <laughs> these online meetings and conversations, you know, at a distance. Mm-hmm. And so much of this whole part that we read kind mm-hmm. of speaks really loudly about that. Uh about what you say when you're talking on the phone. And I think Hal says that like 60% of what he tells Oren on the phone is a lie. Yeah. And he's not even sure. He says he's not sure why he lies. And then that Hal thinks that maybe Oren lies to him too. Like is Oren lying to him 60% of the time? And there's a lot of that through this whole reading about what you show of yourself in this mm-hmm. sort of online or on on phone situation and mm-hmm. how how being physically separated lets you get away with that in a way that you can't when you're right with a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like and when you're talking of- on the phone, you can lie because Hal can't see Oren's face. Oren can't see Hal's face. They it's it's much easier to lie when the only thing you have to do is make your voice sound right and use the right words. It's harder if you're like 
the person you're talking to is right there with you and sees you. And There's a lot of questioning of other people's motives mm-hmm. and just questioning what other people are doing throughout this. And then, but he also even says he has no idea why he liked lying to Oren on the phone yeah. so much. So not only does he lie yeah. to Oren, but he really likes to lie to him. Right, yeah. I guess it's when it's Hal starts to wonder how much of what Oren says to him is the truth when Oren is telling about the guy he saw in the pith helmet stagger and fall oh, over and yeah. onto his face in the, the heat. Another again, Phoenician oh, felt yeah. by the heat. I continue to really enjoy the way Dave Foster Wallace portrays Phoenix and the Southwest yeah. and the yeah. heat. You mm-hmm. feel it. And it's not an exaggeration, really, but I'm sure like just <laughs> falling on your ma- face. His and face made a sizzling noise sizzling when it hit noise. the pavement. And, yeah. So then it's here <laughs> yeah. where Hal is thinking, wait a minute, maybe Oren lies to me too. It also comes up somewhere in here that Oren has been calling Hal, but that it sounds like probably Oren has not been in touch with moms yeah. and CT for a really long time. Yeah. He hasn't mm-hmm. talked to them, but he is talking to Hal. Yeah, and he sort of glosses over that fact when Hal brings it up. It goes along with Oren not really listening to what Hal is saying and vice versa. Then he brings up to Hal that he met somebody. Well, apropos of that, he wants to know what Hal knows about Quebec separatists. Yes. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hal says, you mean in Canada? And Oren says, is there any other kind? Yeah. And, and yeah. then he also talks, that also, I met somebody, a possibly very special somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Hal's very dismissive of that. Yeah, or, well, or he doesn't He doesn't want to hear about it. He says, oh, I think it's dinner time. Right. Well, yeah, no, I, I, I mean, this. the, the right. tone that I get from that is like, this is something Oren has said before. Right. That's probably, probably many yeah. times before. Yeah. Um, so who did he meet? I know who he meant. So mm. was it was it so was it Steeply or was it the what's her name Luria or Lur- could be it could be mm-hmm. or who mm. is it who is it I'm not telling. <laughs> All right, yeah. your lips are sealed. Yeah, no well, it's a, it's here. a it's definitely a spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Um, if we move on, then we can move on to the thing about Ennett House. And the guy who doesn't even use his first name. Who once upon a time used to make people try and eat rocks if they wanted to come yes. to Ennett House. I like that. And, <laughs> and it said something like, uh, chewing on rocks is easier than some stuff that AA asks you to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thought that was probably true, too. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the seven, is it seven step? Twelve Isn't step. Twelve, 12 step. Oh, yeah. seven. That was my shortened version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The 12 step. Uh, just just cut out all the unimportant stick. steps. <laughs> right. But some yeah. of that is really difficult and hard, hard to make yourself do. And probably chewing on rocks might be easier yeah. than making yeah. amends. Do they publicize what the 12 steps are? They do. I've heard some criticism of like AA and um, Al-Anon and other similar programs that many of them are a little culty. Um, they are and, a little bit. Mm. They're religious, and, li- religiously based. You, yeah. If yeah, they accept well, the, a higher power. I guess it yeah, doesn't say which higher, higher power. power. Yeah, it doesn't say which higher power and that higher right. power can also be like um, your self in a way or your willpower mm-hmm. in a way or something like that right. that you know it, it's not necessarily it's 
yeah, understanding that there are things beyond yourself, I guess. Yeah, uh-huh. I don't. That's I don't think important. there's any. I don't think there's any problems with the twelve steps specifically. Just the ways that some groups implement them, and and some I of the things they ask their members to do. Honestly, you know, I I know some people who have used AA incredibly successfully to mm-hmm. turn their lives around in really impressive ways, and we all know that it must be hugely difficult to give up the thing you're addicted to. And so I have a lot of respect for people who use AA. And I I wonder if that kind of criticism of it being somewhat cult-like, if that satisfies some piece of your person who fell into the addiction in the first place. Yeah. It's almost like the... I've the heard that too, The program itself yeah. is the addiction. Like you're replacing mm. this really destructive addiction for a different one that is more, has more positive effects somehow. I can mm-hmm. see that, yeah. In a way. Yeah. But I do also think that you're never going to find a more vulnerable group of potential joiners uh, right. than, than people who are desperate to kick an addiction. And I, I think that there are... There are, I, right. I would assume there are groups out there that exploit that. Hmm. Probably, yeah. I don't get that feeling from Ennett House. No. For what it's worth. No. no. They seem to be... Right. So, so far, what we've read, they seem to be genuinely committed to, like, the rehabilitation of their residents. Yes. Okay, you techies, though, talk to me about the reference at the end of that section on 138 in the year of the... You shit you, 2007 mimetic resolution cartridge view motherboard easy to install upgrade that thing. Yeah, so that's what a new year. We have about? we have yes, we haven't encountered that year before. Right. But this yep. is the and this what is a the year it is. It sure is. But this is the year that causes Avril to, uh, after her protests go unheard, to form right, the. Right. Uh, um, militant grammarians of Massachusetts. Right. And that's over the subsidization of years? She does that? She does that because this is an officially subsidized year and, and she it's considers. Too long. It's clunky. That, well, it, it's, it's too wrong. long and it's grammatically disastrous. Oh, right. yeah. Because that's yeah. the yeah. name of the year. It yeah. like, goes on for three lines or two and a half lines or something. Y M R C V M E T I U F. Yeah. But do we know where it is? I it's, don't offhand. I think we, we, so we don't. No. We can assume it's before Year of Depends because it's in Year of Depends, we're talking about someone who's already dead who died in this year. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, oh, okay. They're right. Okay. I just want to acknowledge that literally the section on Ennett House is just about the founder and the rock thing and. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Right. That's okay. it. Yeah. Right. Moving on. Yeah, there, there's no actual there's plot no, there. Who's the guy? Who is the character that's headed there? Tiny. Yes. Tiny. Tiny is headed, name? is being driven Tiny. there. Tiny Yule. Dri- last Yule. we heard was being oh, driven okay. there. Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Um, so then Fair we yeah. get this email, it, which has included the full email header for our perusal. Um, (laughs) State Farms corporate headquarters are indeed located in normal (gasps) Illinois. Oh, Oh. 
normal Illinois, but not Bloomington, Illinois. Well, they're like they're twin like cities, almost cities, mm. which is confusing because in the header it says Bloomington, Illinois, and then in the email uh, address area it says Normal, Illinois. So, like, maybe mm. the adjuster is off Weird, offices out of right. Bloomington, and the the corporate offices are in Normal or something. Right. But fun fact: Bloomington Normal, Illinois State University, is where David Foster Wallace taught. Ah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh wow! This, this was this, another really funny. I mean, it's not funny, obviously. It, I mean, it's it is though. Hurt, this, but it's, it's really this, funny. It's this continue. I mean, it's the slapstick humor thing, right? Yeah. Of like people being right. injured yeah. for humor. This is right. also. Um, like an early example of a meme it's a joke that did actually circulate via email amongst insurance adjusters in the 90s no uh, really yeah really? and in fact i recognized this story from longer ago uh so i looked it up and snopes says that this story the bricklayer's story dated back to an 1895 newspaper article oh my gosh <laughs> Oh, wow. uh, so I, I quote, the law of the attraction of gravitation was well illustrated on Cedar Street the other day. A man stood holding a rope which ran over a pulley and into a second story window where it was attached to a barrel containing about 600 pounds of iron chain. The barrel was poised on the sill of the window and by some mischance, the man in the building let go of it without notifying the man on the ground. Result, the illustration of the law of gravity, barrel down and man up as he retained his grip on the rope. This guy had this problem because he did not go to Enfield Academy and interact with supposedly <laughs> Lyle, who would right. have told him. It's true. I, you know, he would have told yeah. him, you, yeah, can't, you do not directly... attach yourself to something that is way heavier than you are. Like a yeah. lot heavier. Like, don't do that. Man, so I never even there, considered that thematic connection before that's really yeah. something Good the lord saith supposedly <laughs> yeah the lord saith read this email it's relevant geographically because it takes place in massachusetts and we know mm -hmm. that enfield is near boston um but i had questions about is it relevant at all to the narrative I mean, thematically, right? Like, okay. I think that the thing about holding on to something that's heavier than you is a surprisingly potent image in this couple of chapters. I certainly don't see any plot connections with anything else that we've read so far. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm just curious. It reminds me a little of the, like, after the home invasion thing, we get this little snippet of ad copy about how great the TP system is. Oh, like yeah. it, it just seems like this little bit of found text ephemera from this world. We get into some really long chapter titles here. So, for instance, yeah, right. Hal in Candenza's first extant written comment on anything even remotely filmic submitted to Mr. Oglevy's seventh grade introduction to entertainment studies, two terms required, Enfield Tennis Academy, 21st February in the year of the Purdue Wonder Chicken, at four years after the demise of broadcast television, one year after Dr. James Owen Candenza passed from this life, a submission receiving just a B, B plus, despite overall positive feedback, mostly because its concluding paragraph was neither set up by the essay's body nor supported, Oglevy pointed out, by anything more than subjective intuition and rhetorical flourish. 
You know what I thought when I read that was that it made me wonder what happens to Hal down the line and what he does in his life. Because this mm-hmm. to me sounded very similar to some of the descriptions of his father's work in his filmography. And and the fact that it talks about his first extant written comment on anything even remotely filmic. It makes me wonder if he later does more with yeah, film. Like- like, why like, is this, this is of consequence? His, right. Unless What's it point? prefigures unless, something. When something has to happen to Hal, right? If he's the, if he's <laughs> the main character in the book, something will happen to him. But it, I thought, you know, it's it sounds like a sort of a retrospective look at Hal's first writing about film. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I Whether might be going out on a limb here. I interpreted it as. Hal's first attempt at writing anything remotely related to film, um, which up until this point he's been avoiding because right. of his father's mm. death right. and his father's association with film. Uh-huh. But yeah. I don't know if that hypothesis is supported in the text or not, or if that's yeah. just a feeling that I get. I mean, it makes sense. And then if this is going to be the first thing that you're going to write after your father's death. And you're talking about heroes and different types of heroism. What does that say about his relationship with his father or his father's death? I Mm. guess Mm -hmm. I would posit maybe his father is supposed to be a hero, but he's not really sure about that. I could see that. And grappling with that. Do people have other things to say about, like, the content of his analysis here of Hawaii Five-O? Uh, I thought well, it was kind of interesting, his whole uh, point of his writing, this how our heroes have changed. The hero of action versus the bureaucratic hero. The hero of reaction. Mm. The action hero and the reaction hero. Mm-hmm. And then his the thing that got him his B at the end was his speculation about what would be next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which was the non-action. Right, mm-hmm. the the catatonic, beyond calm hero mm-hmm. uh, is Marat, the hero of non-action. Ooh, oh. mm. divorced from all stimulus, carried here and there across sets by burly extras whose blood sings with retrograde amines. I also want to point out a reference to a very famous non-action-taking hero in Shakespeare's Hamlet. Is that thunder somewhere? Yeah, that's <laughs> really weird. Um, yeah, is that- so, uh, Hamlet is famous for... <laughs> what is not that? taking any so- action and Sorry, always being indecisive. <laughs> Andrew, take it away. Uh, unless someone else, does someone else want to try? Hamlet. Oh. <laughs> oh, Hamlet. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Brianna, go ahead. Yeah, so famously indecisive and not really taking any action throughout the the play except to choose not to act or continuously contemplate will i kill my uncle 
I don't know. Mm-hmm. So in um, that case, the hero of non-action predates this hero of action and reaction. So maybe yeah, by it's a, a good cycle. few hundred years. So you're saying it's a hero cycle? Maybe if Marat or if more of our heroes in Infinite Jest are heroes of non-action, and their predecessor is Hamlet. It's so funny because I can't picture any of the people that we have met in this book so far as being any way describable as being heroes hmm. at this point. But you, I mean, you could say okay. that about Hamlet too. Yeah, I guess that's true. I also mean hero more in term of protagonist. Uh, protagonist, yeah. yeah. Protagonist, okay. <laughs> Less saving lives or making big societal difference. Going back to the question of content, um, I'm more interested in what you think of the content of this essay, Andrew, uh, since you are a professor of cinema. Um, and <laughs> what grade would you give it? Ooh, I'd give this essay like an A. If, if, if somebody uh, wrote this in my writing for film class, uh, I think this is probably an A, A minus essay. Nah, just a solid A. Okay. I, I agree that the, the, the final paragraph is unsupported by evidence, but... Um, at least in the context of the classes that we teach, we're less interested in the scholarship that might happen in a film studies program. And we're more interested in like creative synthesis of work, uh, which seems mm. like that seems like what's happening in the final paragraph here. Um, yeah. And, and I, you know, he doesn't say this is this is what will happen. He's just sort of speculating based on. Right. Right. What yeah. society is like. So then. if he were a student in the Favang program, for instance, we could read it as him speculating about work that he would consider making himself. For the folks oh, okay. at home, what is Favang? Film, video, animation, and new genres. Nobody knows what new genres mean. Not new media. New genres. Hmm. What is yeah. a new genre? I can't think of one. That's why it's new. Yeah, it hasn't been invented yet, but when it is, we'll be ready. <laughs> so Hal is writing about these old TV shows when, in fact, the chapter heading there talks about the demise of broadcast TV was yeah. four, four years after <laughs> the demise of broadcast TV. So these yeah. TV sh these shows were definitely a mainstay. Mm -hmm. of the yeah. 70s and 80s. There's a blind spot in David Foster Wallace's predictions about TV here also, and it's uh, surprising to me because I think that it was established in in practice by the time that he was writing these, or wasn't being put into practice yet, but it was established on the roadmap for broadcast television. It sounds like he's predicting that digital television, digital transmission, and digital cable would be the end of over-the-air free TV, and that from then on uh -huh. you would pay a subscription fee and you would get channels delivered over cable. Um, it does seem like maybe he's imagining something similar to Netflix in some ways. Um, yeah. But he, he seems to think that, that free over the air TV will be gone within a couple years of his writing, which isn't what happened. Um, uh, no, but there, it may play out that way. Well, it, he, I think that he's writing specifically about the end of analog broadcast transmission, right. uh, oh, which happened. Right. It okay. happened in, yeah, in the yeah. early 2000s. And it, it, me, it made all, all the old uh, analog receivers and like right. rabbit ears antennas stop right. working. But digital signals can be broadcast over the air and still are everywhere. Yeah. Digital high definition, you can buy an antenna for and, and watch NBC and ABC 
uh, just the same as people have for decades. But it may indeed play out. Like, I do agree that, like, the big four networks or whatever are definitely much less important now than they were in the 90s. And, and there's not really such a thing as, like, a TV show that everyone watches anymore. Any more here, or should we move on? We could move on. The next chapter yeah, title is also a doozy. And I'm going to have an immediate question about it. Okay, so let me just oh read boy. it. Let me just read mm-hmm. it, and then, Brianna, you can jump in with your question. Enormous electrolysis-rashed journalist... Helen Steepley's only putative published article before beginning her soft profile on Phoenix Cardinals, Punter, Orin J, and Candenza, and her only putative published article to have anything overtly to do with good old metropolitan Boston, 10 August in the year of the depend adult undergarment, four years after optical theorist, entrepreneur, tennis academician, and avant-garde filmmaker James Owen Candenza took his life by putting his head in a microwave oven. Here's yes, my this, question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You go first. <laughs> How do you feel, as first-time readers, hearing the method of James O. Incandenza's suicide in this chapter heading? Okay, so I have an answer for that. Because when I first read it, I thought, oh my god, what a bizarre way to kill yourself. And then, like, days later, I was driving somewhere in the car, and I thought, wait a minute, how can you put your head in a microwave? Yeah. You can't turn it on unless you remove your head from your body, which then putting it in the Th- microwave then that's not is the method the of, point. yeah. Right, like... Right. Well, presumably, one... I assume that the reason you can't start a microwave with the door open is that there's some kind of a switch that is activated when the door is closed. So it, I think if you tampered with the switch... You could you could turn but it on with the door open. How would that even work? I I yeah I started to question it. Is what happened <laughs> yeah. to me? I started mm. to question whether this is truly the method he used to end his life, or whether this is a lie. I don't outs- know. Outside the context of home microwaves, I'd like to share a little tidbit <laughs> of knowledge that I have about the invention of the home microwave. Oh my okay. uh, Or, or the, dis- the discovery of home microwave as a technology. Okay, go okay. ahead. Microwaves were used as a transmission tool, like a data transmission system for a long time by the armed forces, uh, I think starting around the end of World War II. Um, because is they were the DARPA stuff. The... Uh, well, no, microwave microwave is still used a lot. In fact, oh, okay. anytime you look at it, if you're in a city and you see a big radio tower with a sort of circular yeah. circular thing on the top that isn't really shaped like a dish, it's just kind of a cylinder. That's a microwave oh, receiver. Okay. Okay. Um, Weird. They're, they're good. They're still used for stock trading. Uh, one of the things about microwave <laughs> transmission is that it's very fast. The the uh, the distance covered isn't a lot, so you need to have a whole bunch of relay towers, but it's very fast. And and, and they take a lot of power. Uh, and and the ability to use microwaves to heat things efficiently was discovered when a microwave technician for the U.S. Army was servicing a microwave dish and discovered that the candy bar in his pocket had melted. Um <laughs> Well, that's really uh, funny. And, and furthermore, I've heard anecdotes of radio engineers in the army cooking a Thanksgiving turkey on a microwave transmission dish. Huh. Um, mm. so, huh. so that seems to be where the idea came from huh. for home microwaves. Oh, that's so funny. That's great. Okay. So did you have any feelings, Vinny? 
My yeah. Feelings, yeah, what were your feelings? I, my feelings are similar to Norma's second wave of feelings, which is I'm wondering how it's possible for him to put his head inside a microwave oven. And that even if that's the case, it seems very deliberate, I guess. Um, it it mm-hmm. seems like he, that there are better, easier ways of killing yourself than putting your head inside a microwave. Uh, and that that is something very specific. And that if that is indeed how he died, he wanted to die that way. He wanted us to be able to talk and be able to wonder how did he put his head inside a microwave and why did he put his head inside a microwave mm-hmm. and have this dialogue and have this question. He wanted it to be a spectacle in some way. Performance art. Right. I yeah, mean, I do, exactly. I, do think that, I do think that what we know of James Incandenza tells us that he's not, he's not one for doing things the easy way. Um, and, <laughs> and, so, and so in that way, I do think this kind of makes sense. Um, it's still very troubling. Well, that it is very troubling, and it would be just a horrific way to die. So I just looked it yeah. up online, uh, suicide by microwave oven. <laughs> and you first get a, a thing that says that if you're contemplating killing yourself, you can contact the hotline, suicide Okay, hotline. good. Uh, but somebody, hmm. and, and then the person who initially posed the question is like, Sheesh, I'm just, I'm not, I'm happy with life. I want to keep living, yeah. but I just wondered. Uh, and somebody says, well, uh, it's, it's possible, but relatively unlikely that if you operate the oven with the door open, which would require disla- disabling the door interlock, and then you stand in front of it, you could end up with significant burns, uh, but that it would be really unlikely because it would hurt so bad that you wouldn't be able to stay in the space long enough to have it do you yeah. in. Yeah. So it would be an ugly way to go, for sure. So we're really hoping that that's not how it happened. Yeah. We are. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. You know what? This could be a fascinating thing to continue looking at. There are all kinds of online articles, like one... The Microwave as a Murder Weapon, A Brief oh, History. Oh. That was oh, from 2014. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, just saying. Huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think you found your here. extracurricular <laughs> reading, Norma. <laughs> Maybe yeah. so. Maybe um, so. So the, the article itself has almost entirely nothing to do with the chapter heading. Right. Yep. Um, but it does, it, however, have to do with our friends back in the yeah, horrible... Poor Tony, game. potentially, poor Tony, or yours yeah. truly. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Vinny, when you first introduced the idea of this being like a, a 90s slapstick humor hellscape, um, mm-hmm. I wasn't totally convinced. But the more I think about that in reading, it seems to really strike... A, like, this really struck a chord with me as being like this story would be funny in a slapstick kind of way if it weren't absolutely just sad. Um, right. Yeah. I keep thinking of, of your slapstick uh, comments too, Vinny. And I, I agree. Yeah. It's like horrible. And yet the way it's portrayed is in such a, you can see it playing like, out on TV. 
on yeah, a like, stupid like if you TV could, show. If you could set aside your ability to feel any empathy for other people, you could see right. how you might, like how this might be your pinnacle of humor. Um, yeah. 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 You, in, in that you, cartoonish you know kind of way. Like to me? Go mm. ahead. It feels like a Kids in the Hall sketch. Yes. Um, yeah. Because there's tons of Kids in the Hall sketches that sketch comedy, but that's very either dramatic or outside of normal comedic understanding. Yeah. And I can definitely see this fitting in with there. Or like um, uh, the Mr. Show sketch of the man who summited Everest, but nobody pays attention to that because he keeps on falling over. <laughs> yes. And yeah. it's yeah, kind of this... <laughs> like tragic flaw that this guy has and he's desperately trying to do it. But at the same time, he's falling over and it just gets progressively more and more ridiculous. I did a little research on the Jarvik heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is the Jarvik nine. And I, I looked it up and the first, the first artificial heart that was actually successfully used was the Jarvik seven. Okay. Uh, and then uh, that happened in 1982. And then it said that the only currently used artificial heart is made by a company called Syncardia. And that it is a device that you carry in a backpack that has an hmm. external air compressor that pumps the heart from the outside. Oh, that's fascinating. I thought that that was wow. pure invention. Right. So carrying yeah. her heart pump in her artificial heart in her purse is, I mean, that actually happens. Apparently. Yeah, like within people the realm of possibility. Their, people carry this pump in a backpack hmm. and walk around, apparently. That's amazing. Wow. And of course, we also have to note that this is the same disease that uh, Marat's wife has, right? Oh, is it? Mm hmm. I think so. It I is? believe so. It is uh, restenosis. Oh, okay. Yes. Well, that's, uh, that's a woman, fascinating. A 46-year-old Boston accountant with irreversible restenosis of the heart. Did anybody else notice how emphatically the piece talks about this woman being active? Right. She actively window shopped. The active alert woman mm -hmm. gave chase. Yeah. 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 The I, word I'm, active is used multiple times to describe this woman, and I just right. found it very interesting. I, I'm wondering whether that's a subtle indication of Steepley's subpar writing. <laughs> hmm. Perhaps. Perhaps. Or it's a tongue-in-cheek reference to the fact that a person can still be active if they have an artificial heart, but oh, then hey. again actively window shopping You're actively window shopping her um, active schedule um moment magazine is a real thing is it really oh yeah so, uh, founded in 1975 by ellie wassell and writer leonard fine um mm. it's a fiercely independent magazine that provides north american jews with award-winning in-depth reporting hmm Wait, Ellie Fizell, like yes. the writer of Night? The, of, of Night, yes. Holy crap. Hmm. Yeah. The other thing I don't understand, so the, the chapter, the section title, and so it talks about him, about Steeply, or her, <laughs> uh, beginning her soft profile on Oren. 
So this yes. is this is August before the was it November phone call from Oren to Hal saying that he met a special someone. Oh yeah. This is in August and he hadn't in August it says that he hadn't yet or she hadn't yet hadn't yet started. She hadn't yeah. yet started it. Uh, but Maybe. there's that reference to Steeply's connection to Oren somehow. Hmm. So next we have this uh, list of Quebec separatist anti-Onan groups. And I thought it was notable that the that the wheelchair assassins are listed as the very violent, the VV. They get the yes. VV designation. They're extremely violent. And yeah. really, there's only one other group that is... Which I can't um, say because it's in French. There's also another another group that we haven't heard mention of before, the the Sons of Papineau. Yeah. Um, so I looked up who Papineau was. Louis-Joseph Papineau was a 19th century French-Canadian politician. Uh, he organized a boycott of British-Canadian commerce and was forced into exile in France for eight years. Seems largely unremarkable, except that he led a life of interesting and sometimes unfortunate hair. So right now in the general, I'm pasting in a painting of him as an elder statesman. Oh, look at um, him. Is that and, where the pompadour comes from? Uh, I do not believe so. Oh, um, okay. uh, more, more unfortunate. Here he is as a ten-year-old child. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh. oh. wow! Oh, no. dear. Yep. I don't think we need to dwell on this. I could imagine myself flipping back to this list, though, at some point if uh -huh. I need more context or, or need to be reminded about these groups' tactics. Mm-hmm. That puts um, us on to this last section that we read, and this is the one, this is the one that I thought was particularly, uh, yeah. like, you really get it in Zoom pandemic calls. world. Yeah. It is so applicable to us yeah. and so, our situation. So in broad strokes, the chapter is about like the rise and fall in popularity of video phones right. uh, and their use, their incorporation into right. TP consoles. Can I request that you not read that entire, entire I, yeah, chapter? I will not. Title? I will not. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. You. I'll be I'll be interested to see if we encounter a title longer than this it's in the a book. Really long is title. that? I, so again, I'm looking at the electronic copy. Is that like almost a full page in the yeah. print oh, version? Yes, mm -hmm. yes, it would yeah. be a full it's, page. It's over it, a full page. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it was also true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, there, there's a couple. There's a couple little details that I want to point to that I think are fun. Is, does anyone have anything they want to talk about specifically here? Uh, not specifically, but one of the details that I found interesting was. That they decided that um, instead of having a digital overlay of showing your face, being interested and paying attention, things like that, <laughs> they found it was cheaper to have masks made. Yes, yes, yes. Like Horrible. the really yeah. good ones, like yeah. the spies well, on the spy movies used. So, so this <laughs> is this is interesting because it, again, it's it's like David Foster Wallace's blind spot in imagining future technology, and it seems like. Maybe in the nine, like in the nineties, this would have been true. It's easy. It's cheaper to wear an intricate mask of your own face than to try and digitally enhance your image in real time. But now it's trivial to do that. Like, like now every phone does that. 
out of the box. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think the economics feel very cockeyed to me. One detail that I really liked, he mentions the the little homuncular icon on screen that would give you information about like, remember to take your pills and like somebody's calling and how how people felt, how people really liked the little homunculus. (laughs) But that reminded me a lot of Clippy, the paperclip. Oh, Um, Oh, yes. I forgot about Clippy. I just looked up Clippy and uh, looks like it was introduced in 1997, maybe. Mm -hmm. So not long after the writing of this book, but it wouldn't have been something that he was familiar with. Yeah. I just so much enjoyed the whole concept of videophonic stress. Yes, I feel that. I absolutely yes. feel that. Yes. You know, it's I, yeah. I've had to do I've had to lead like deliver lectures and lead crits uh-huh. on on video calls. And it's yeah. uh, it's really stressful. And I I mean, I'm not a huge fan of phones. I think phones stress me out uh-huh. also. But mm-hmm. video calls just turn up the uh, the stress because he's absolutely right. You can't look away. If you look away for even an instant, it seems like you're being inattentive. I will confess that I have been in classes where to help me pay attention i've needed to do something else at the same time yeah Yeah. i just like the voice only phone allows for the bilateral illusion of unilateral attention yeah which so you can pretend i can pretend like i'm listening to you to what you're saying even though i'm doing all kinds of other stuff and you know uh picking my fingernails and having lunch and, you know, doing all kinds of stuff, reading, mm-hmm. reading, or yeah, I can be doing anything. Uh, but mm-hmm. the, the funny thing is that it's kind of like Hal's recognition that he lies to Oren and then the like, oh, I wonder if Oren lies mm-hmm. to me. It's that same thing. It's like, well, I can, I can give the impression that I'm listening to you, even though I'm doing a million other things, but I'm still... I'm still like assuming that you're giving me your undivided attention when the truth is you're probably not either. Yeah. Right. You're probably doing other stuff too while you're talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) And then when you have the video on you, like Brianna was saying, you can't do that, which is why, and you have to care. You have to like think about how you look uh, Mm -hmm. and if you're dressed (laughs) or not. And his description of um, his description how, how like people a, look to themselves on the TP right, camera is also right, very uh, right. evocative for me. Yeah. That mm-hmm. um, consumers perceived something essentially blurred and moist looking about their phone faces, a shiny, <laughs> right. pallid indefiniteness that struck them as not just unflattering, but somehow evasive, furtive, untrustworthy, unlikable. Right. Um, yeah, that's, they, I mean, that's absolutely something that all of our webcams do. They say that like the old fashioned voice only communication Mm -hmm. is then you're getting a phone call. But when you're doing a video chat, it's more like you're answering the doorbell. Yes. (laughs) Because you actually are going to be confronted with whoever it is that's that's going to communicate with you. Right. And then the tableau, which basically (laughs) is just putting a fake thing on. Which it's just a picture. Which, yeah, yeah, just like a f- putting a photo right. in front of your webcam. Right, mm-hmm. which kind of is also happening now with all the online work about people putting up like a virtual back- backdrop. Oh, yeah, the backdrops the, for Zoom and, yeah. and Teams. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that, so that you, people can't see the actual space where you are. Yeah. 
Yeah, Microsoft yeah. Teams is really funny because you can't customize. There's a set number of images you can pick from. And I was looking, the last time we had a, a staff meeting, I was looking through the options. And it's funny how they seem to be curated and pitched towards very specific purposes. Like, there's a, there's a number of backdrops that resemble um, a very minimalist, monochromatic like wealthy person's loft apartment somewhere <laughs> and and there's there's an image that really is just like a featureless concrete wall um yep. and and then there's the tropical island you always have to have one tropical island with right. unnaturally like electric blue and green yeah and it it does feel very much like that it also reminds me of a technology that existed i think in the early 2000s uh some or or late 90s someone tried to create a video calling system uh but one of the problems they ran into was that there wasn't enough bandwidth over the connection to transmit full motion video and so instead they decided that how it would work is that they'd store a photograph of you and send that photograph to the person you were talking to um, and then they would animate your lips moving um, based based on your voice. And one of the criticisms they got is like, it's really awful to imagine like talking to someone that you care about and seeing their smiling face tell you really bad news. Oh, mm. oh. I also looked up. I was curious about when like they were talking about the first video chatting Mm -hmm. when when it became widely used. And so I found an article in The Atlantic. They said that like in 1996, so, so as late as 1996, the average family, uh, just middle-class family, was contemplating getting dial-up internet mm -hmm. about 1996. And that Skype first came on the scene in 2003, that mm -hmm. it was widely used or that it was really out there. And now, mm -hmm. and then by two, by 2014, you had the selfie editing apps <laughs> to yeah. edit how you look. So it is. Yeah. Something that a lot of phones now, particularly in, for whatever reason, in like Southeast Asian markets, um, come pre-installed with this feature, but also in, in North America too. A lot of Android phones have this software built in that's almost impossible to deactivate that like beautifies your face in selfies that that huh. automatically recognizes the contours of your face and accentuates your cheekbones and narrows your face and huh. uh, applies digital makeup to you so your eyes don't look dark. Um, and that's just that's just considered like so necessary for a selfie that you would never even want to turn it off. Uh, in Asian markets, does it also make you look paler? It does, or it often does. Hmm. I think that there was some, <laughs> Samsung faced some kind of backlash about that, but I think that they still do it. Which is a cultural, um, yeah. glorification of whiteness that mm -hmm. is a problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I found this chunk of pages that we read fairly, uh, fun to read except for the one ugly section about the yeah habits. but yeah but there was a lot of fun information and fun ideas and it was challenging my old thinking my old way of thinking about the book just wanted to say okay mm -hmm. it is you know i'm enjoying reading it yeah it felt pretty easy this yeah week. i agree yeah 
Yeah, except for that uh, one chapter that we started off with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was pretty yeah. easy. Thanks for joining us. Next week, we'll be talking about pages 151 to 172. Our music is by David Nichols. Listen to his podcast, The Land of Random, on Spotify. Uh, does anyone have any plugs or anything? Uh, as always, you can check me out on Instagram at CardboardVV. And uh, yeah, there I post all my paintings. Nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, my website is agingrick.com. Congratulations to all the graduates out there. And yeah, happy congratulations Day. to and happy, Mother's happy Mother's Day. Congratulations Mother's to Day. anyone who has finished out their uh, their education in these uh, very difficult last few weeks. Uh, and yeah. if you have to go yeah. to any graduation parties online, make sure that you have a mask ready so that you can <laughs> portray <laughs> the yeah. you that you want to portray. Ideally, a full mm-hmm. body mask. Full body mask would be best. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what this podcast is recommending. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening. And remember to always favor the more stoic corporate hero of reactive probity. Goodbye. Wow. Wow. Did you not get it?